Welcome to 15 Minutes on the Way, Season 9, The Remnant. If you're a first-time listener, you really owe it to yourself to start at the beginning. Find Episode 1 of Season 1 at 15minutesontheway.com. Don't spell out 15. Otherwise, brace yourself for a conversation with God's voice telling His side of your story. I ended last week's episode by mentioning that I never include the name of my primary enemy in the owner's manual. You heard me right. You've got that part all wrong. Some of you even have owner's manuals with the name Lucifer embedded in Isaiah 14. But I'm afraid that ranks right up with calling me Jehovah. It may be well-intentioned, but frankly, it's erroneous and incorrect. A misnomer or a misnamer, and in this case, a coarse transliteration of a Latin term derived from Luke's. Light. Uh, This telephone game decay begins with Jerome's translation of the owner's manual into Latin in the 4th century if you're looking to cast blame somewhere. When you add the suffix fer to a noun in Latin, from ferre meaning to bear or carry, you get something that carries or bears that noun. For example, an aquifer carries water, a conifer bears cone-shaped fruit, a luxifer or lucifer carries or bears light. And in the case of Isaiah's prophecy, that light is carried or borne by a star. And lest anyone get carried away with that image as a true name for the enemy, let us remind you of the repeated use of metaphor throughout all language, not just in the owner's manual. For example, the pharaohs referred to themselves as the morning star. But that doesn't mean they're the only kings to whom that metaphor can be applied. We've used it for Babylon's king here in Isaiah. We're speaking of him in this passage. In addition, the fact that I use the morning star term in direct conversation with Job, coupled with reference to multiple angelic beings, all of whom I had created previous to your physical universe, needn't necessarily come into play here. But even if it does, it's at best a categorizing term. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation, when the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Job 38.4 However you look at it, the term is used metaphorically and applied in different instances and is not a proper name be it Lightbearer, Lucifer, or Ralph. Not that the Isaiah passage in question, that's Isaiah 14, 3 through 31 for the whole passage, not that the passage in question could not be used to describe the rebel angel to whom it's been assigned, an assignation that's perfectly understandable considering some of its contents. The prophecy speaks of one fallen from heaven, who had sought to set his throne as high as mine, but had been brought down to the depths of the pit and cast out. This one and his followers and offspring are banished lest they rise to inherit the land. 
Content must be married to context, though, especially when you're unpacking the owner's manual. However this content may fit your idea of things, Isaiah sets it all quite clearly as a taunt against the king of Babylon at the beginning, with the promise to wipe out Babylon's name and survivors at its end, Isaiah 14.3 and 22, respectively. A similar passage in Ezekiel that some find an even more blatant reference to the enemy, especially and understandably the you-were-in-Eden bit, is also directed at a human king, this time the king of Tyre, who moves from splendor to prideful unrighteousness and is therefore driven in disgrace from the mount of God. That's Ezekiel 28:11 through 19 Both these passages just happen to occur pretty much in parallel to our one God-only gauntlet in terms of our making clear in both deed and now declaration that no other deity exists. We could just come right out and say something directly about the enemy. However, given the pride and narcissism of the one about whom we are talking, the best policy in dealing with them is to refuse them the spotlight. Why, we even declare in the Isaiah passage, let the offspring of the wicked never be mentioned again. Isaiah 14.20 And this all started with a name that doesn't exist, remember? Lucifer? You may have another name up your imagination, but that's also wrong too. So sorry to burst so many dark bubbles at once here for you. You see, Satan isn't a name any more than butcher, baker, or candlestick maker are. It's essentially an occupation. Satan, or in the original Hebrew, Satan, means accuser. And when the term appears a handful of times in the Tanakh or First Testament, most of these are in the book of Job, where the accuser plays a pivotal part, at which we'll look in a moment. The term always appears in Hebrew with the definite article ha before it, as in ha-satan. That's the accuser, like the baker. It's not a name. It's a profession. Sure, in lingual development, some of those bakers' progeny are now the baker family, but you understand the difference. Satan is no more a name than Lord is mine. Lord is my position, Yahweh is my name. The enemy is identified and referred to solely by his position as the accuser and is not ever named in the owner's manual. His positional description of accuser, Satan, Satan, how you pronounce it now, is eventually simply used as a name, but once again, that's simply capitalizing his professional station and calling the baker in town, Mr. Baker. The other moniker used in relation to the accuser, Baal-zebub, is also a title, Lord of the Flies, not a name. And by the way, the fact that this information is relegated to mere footnote status should really steam him. I want to be clear that this is not some kind of Voldemort-style superstition. The accuser wouldn't gain some kind of power upon the mention of his name if it were known, other than the satisfaction of pride at the notoriety. And that's the point. 
Though he is quite insulted by it, we are actually doing him a favor in not feeding the arrogance that is the cause of his downfall. Thus, the accuser remains anonymous. However, it would be utter foolishness on both your part and ours to pretend he's not out there particularly given his character and that of those who have cast their lot with him. Whether one is coming up against another team in sports or in military conquest, having a bit of information about your opponent is always helpful. Hence the mention by Daniel's angel that there are supernatural beings, apparently of equivalent power to some of our own angels, whose purpose seems to be to subvert, prevent, or delay our purposes. Maybe now would be a good time to get that cup of coffee or tea. Since we've opened this can of worms, now is as good a time as any to go ahead and for a moment discuss Job a bit further, since it's really the only entry in the owner's manual that gives the accuser any direct full reference. In full disclosure, the chronicler in 1 Chronicles 21 out of nowhere assigns the accuser the role of source of David's pride in wanting to count the inhabitants of Israel in order to gloat over its size. Said accuser isn't mentioned again until Job. There will also be a two-verse reference in our penultimate prophet to which we'll get. The book of Job isn't completed until after this point in time in our developmental program as we've been describing it, so everything we've said thus far about our policy shift holds true for his contents. We know we've been on the way with you a long time at this point, so we'll restrain ourselves with regard to Job, about whom a great deal could be said. He's an archetype of someone doing their very best to live on the way and has, as a result, reaped the bountiful benefits promised thereon. Job 1, 1 through 5 establishes Job's righteousness and wealth. Job thus serves as a further archetype of an innocent person who seems to suffer for no apparent reason when his world falls apart around him. Only there is a reason and not a very satisfying one. The accuser is the source of every calamity Job suffers. This all takes place in the context of an anthropomorphized staff meeting of sorts, where I am receiving reports from various heavenly beings, and the accuser is among them. When he reports that he's been traveling to and fro over the earth, I ask if he's noticed the integrity of our man Job. The accuser then accuses me of spoiling Job, insinuating that if I hadn't blessed the man so much, he'd have surely tripped off the way long before. Job 1, 6-12 for our interaction with the accuser. What happens next is what makes your habitat feel the most uncomfortable. It's the part where I allow the accuser essentially to mess with Job putting all his life in the accuser's power except for his life itself. Now, whether this book is a transcript of an actual conversation and resulting sequence of events, or an allegory meant to convey some of the truths of existence, the primary lesson from its opening remains the same. 
It concerns something we established long ago as an important facet of our love for you and for every sentient being we created. This includes the ones that are not on your sensory spectrum. Every one of you and them has the power to choose. The working out of the consequences of those choices, while sometimes logical and expected, is often complicated considering the interplay between the choices of those whose lives are combined in one way or another. This is particularly so when the choices of spiritual beings are included as factors in the already complex equation. Just as you can plainly see in the lives of the humans around you, some tend to most often make good, positive choices on the whole. Others seem bent on making bad, harmful ones. This holds true on both sides of the flesh fence. The book of Job in large part is a discussion of how those choices play out in life. It also functions essentially as a disclaimer warning that there will be times when things will go wrong in spite of your having done everything right. The book of Ecclesiastes delivers a similar message. In time, Job loses everything, his wealth, his children, even his health. All he's left with is a nagging wife and a body covered with boils. Job is innocent. His calamity is not a consequence of his own choice or action. Let's look at how things play out. Job's friends come to comfort him in his calamity. They represent traditional reasoning, saying Job surely must have sinned in order for me to be so angry with him as to hit him with so much catastrophe. Job maintains his innocence, and correctly so, and even calls me out with, Oh, that I had someone to hear me. Let the Almighty answer me. Job 31.35 I will certainly oblige him, but before I do, we just want to make sure you notice the significance of what just went by. We know it can be unsettling, and though that's not our goal, we do want you to take it in as it's the primary point of this episode. If nothing else, Job serves as a template for unexplainable causality. Job isn't suffering because of his own mistakes. He's not suffering because of one of his neighbor's mistakes. Most human suffering can be traced back to human causes, whether they be as direct as a drunk climbing behind a wheel, or as distant but just as human-driven as the critical mass of pollutants causing so many cancers and other illnesses in your habitat. However, human error and sin are not at the root of Job's catastrophe. The accuser is. The accuser acts so because he has been allowed by us the same power of choice and influence as, say, Michael, another angelic being we created who's repeatedly decided to make far better choices. That is far too clinical a way to say that sometimes the suffering in your life has no cause in human action or intention and has its source squarely in the accuser's hands, at which you have every right to pile up the then-why-don't-use and why-haven't-use. This is at the core of Job's question to me, and, as I've mentioned, the theme with which Ecclesiastes wrestles. 
Job doesn't have the benefit of the larger perspective you get from reading his biography. We tell you about the accuser. Job simply has to live out seemingly random consequences without knowing their source. He wants to know why, though, and at some point in your life, so do you. Why me? Why now? Why doesn't God do something about this? Why haven't I hogtied the accuser and kept him from such heinous deeds? On behalf of all humans that have ever suffered innocently in one way or another, Job asks me the quintessential question of all time. Why? Our answer to Job is four chapters long, Job 38 through 41 and deserves more description and processing than 30 seconds, which is all we have left today. So we'll take up this discussion and these difficult questions next time on The Way. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to support what we do, give us a review on iTunes or Facebook, then share this podcast with your friends. Use the link to the very first episode from our website, 15minutesontheway.com. We hope today's episode has reminded you that you, friend, are part of an epic story that is still unfolding today. So keep walking on the way. And until next time, be good to yourself.